If you would, open with me in your Bibles. Um, this morning, I, I'm going to plan to do a little bit of an exposition of all of Deuteronomy 4 through 9. Um, so a, a good portion of this will be a review of what we've already covered in the, the last few weeks, and then we'll look at verses 8 and 9 this week as well and show how they fit into the Shema. So I'll go ahead and read Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9 for us right now, and then I'll go ahead and pray for us one more time. This is what the Lord says. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Let's pray together. Father, we see here such a high standard of what it means to love you. And that high standard is only fitting. You deserve all of our love and adoration and devotion. And yet, Lord, we know that we need a Savior to fulfill these commands on our behalf. We need, we need a Savior who can enable us to follow in his example and obey these commands. And Lord, we are thankful to gather together to worship you through our risen Savior who has done this very thing. And so we're thankful that Christ has come. We're thankful for his life and death and resurrection. We're thankful for the spirit that is in us that enables us through the name of Jesus to glorify you by loving you. So please continue to work in us that we would be like Christ, that your spirit would continue to sanctify us and help us to mature, to grow as a body into the one who is our head. In praise in his name. Amen. I'm thankful to have a, a time to, to preach together um, on Mother's Day and to, to be able to be thankful for so many things that God has given us, but to be thankful for, for mothers and also to, to just be thankful even for um, just the women of our church. And some of them don't have children, and yet they are absolutely spiritual mothers to, to those who are younger than them, to, than them, some of that includes to me, and especially to my boys. I am thankful for godly women and the profound impact they have in the home and in the church and in society at large. We have been rejoicing at this leak that has come out this week um, about the, the likely overturning of Roe versus Wade. You're going to be hard-pressed to convince me that Christian women have not played a pivotal role in undoing this evil. Both in, in active ministry and prayers, these women who are ministering in this way against abortion are crushing Satan underneath their feet. And so... Uh, this this is this is such a, a glorious time to remember, especially with this news coming out, to remember how God does such glorious things and women are so pivotal in the in the work and 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 advancement of God's gospel to the ends of the earth. So I, I was considering how to to open this morning. I, I'm not a topical preacher, um, 
and I, I remembered a story that I think actually fits with, with the occasion and with our text. I was considering a, a mother I had read about uh, who would take time regularly to, to open the scriptures with her children, to, to pray with her children and pray that her children would be saved. And, and one of the prayers that she prayed in front of her children was later written down by, by one of her sons. And this was uh, a gist uh, and portion of her prayer. She said, Now, Lord, if my children go on in their sins, it will not be from ignorance that they perish. And my soul must bear a swift witness against them at the day of judgment if they lay not hold of Christ. Did you catch that? This mom is praying in front of her children. God, if my children reject this gospel, they reject you. That is only because of their sin and is only their fault. And she's saying, if you need witnesses to establish that point, I will stand to swiftly bear witness that my children have rejected you and that is their sin and they are worthy of the judgment that will come upon them because of that rejection of Christ. I don't know how many women would stitch something like that into their pillow. <laughs> we probably have a lot of thoughts about a woman who would say things like that to her children, to pray that way in front of her children. And I think it would be easy for a lot of us to take offense to a mom praying that way to her children or in front of her children. And can I just say that that mother was right to pray that way. She was right to pray that way. She was right to convey that God is her first and foremost love. There is no dividing of that mother's loyalty. That mother clearly knew Luke 14, 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, and yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. That mom knew the cost of discipleship. She knew what it meant to follow Christ. And if I can just say clearly, she, is, she was teaching her children an invaluable lesson, which is that her children are not the center of the universe which is for their ultimate good. They need to know that they have been made by God and for God. So it is that mother's loving of God first that is actually for that child's ultimate blessing. If that child lives a life of selfishness and the mother caters to it, that child's not going to find life in and of themselves. Their pursuit of self will actually destroy themselves. So the mother loving God most over and above her children is actually showing her children where to go for life and blessing. She is preserving her children's lives by that testimony. Wisdom is known by her deeds. And the question is, what sort of impact did praying like that happen? Or what, what sort of impact did praying like that have on her children? And Mrs. Spurgeon's son, Charles Haddon, did not forget that prayer. This had an impact, a proper impact on her children. We all need to have an unrivaled love for God. Above all, no rivals, God alone. That love for God needs to include a surrender of all that we are, every portion of our, our, of our being. We are to love God at all times, in all places. We are to love God in full obedience, flowing out of our faith in Christ. Our love for God must be, in fact, the most obvious thing about us. In an age of personality tests that we try to use to figure out who we are, what figures out who we are is our love for God. 
if I can, I, this is maybe the shortest main point I've ever made in my entire life. Our main point this morning is love God completely. Love God completely. And to give us some context of where we are here in the book of Deuteronomy, I, I've talked about uh, the dynamics of Israel being called to image God's glory. We're going to come back to that. But there's something even in the backdrop of them imaging God that we need to keep in mind as we're coming into this, this conclusion of our look at the Shema, Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. And to, to get us some context going into there, I want us to, to go back to Genesis 3.15 and consider a few different passages. So if you could flip to your left with me to Genesis 3.15. So this is oftentimes called the first proclamation of the gospel in the scriptures. We're in the garden. God is speaking to the serpent. Adam and Eve had disobeyed. And the fall has taken place because of their disobedience. And this is what God says to the serpent here in Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. So what this is saying is that Eve is going to have descendants. The serpent is going to have his own descendants, and they are going to be in conflict. It seems, and there's more than one way to interpret it, it seems from my understanding that the between your offspring and her offspring seems to be referring to many offspring. But then I want to note that I think there is a shift here at the end of verse 15. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. We are now at the end of verse 15, focusing on an Adam that is better than the first Adam because this, this Adam is going to do what the first Adam should have done when that serpent came into the garden. He is going to crush the head of the serpent. Now, to, to quickly tie, I'm gonna, we're going to look at a couple more passages, but to just make a point and to, to kind of connect it at the outset to Deuteronomy 6, we are in need of someone who can perfectly obey God's commands because repeatedly God's people are not sufficient in and of themselves to do so. We need a snake-crushing Savior to come and fulfill God's commands for us and then enable us to follow God's commands as well. If you'll flip over with me to Genesis 22, Abraham was promised to have land, seed, and blessing. That's one of the catechism questions. Um, Abraham's promised to have descendants there as numerous as the stars of the sky, as the sand on the seashore. And we're going to see that again here. In Genesis 22, Abraham has shown his faithfulness to God such that he was willing to offer up his own son Isaac. And yet God provides a substitute. And then God says this to Abraham, starting in verse 17. I will surely bless you. And I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. So there's, there we see it. Abraham is promised to have many descendants. Stars of heaven, sand that is on the seashore. But then look at this. If you're looking at the ESV, I think the ESV does a good job with this. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And I think that's the proper way to understand this. There is a one seed of Abraham that is going to defeat God's enemies, the enemies of God's people. And then it says, And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So here again, we're seeing this idea. We as the many are not sufficient. But there is one who's coming who's going to defeat evil and obey God's standards 
and commands perfectly. In Genesis 49, we talked about this a little bit this morning in Sunday school. If you'll flip over with it, made to Genesis 49. We're seeing that this seed of the woman, this seed of Abraham, this one who is going to bring about salvation for the many, is going to come from Judah's line. Genesis 49 verse 9 says, Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey of my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, and as a lioness, who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. There's a king coming through the line of Judah that is going to be this one who brings salvation to all of God's people. And in Numbers 24, if you'll flip over with me there, Numbers 24, I'm going to start in verse 5. We're going to see, you know, we're going quick, but we're going to see a lot of themes that we just touched on repeated all in this one little section. This is a very dense section, so I'm going to just try to hit a main point or two. So verse 5 says, How lovely are your tents, O Jacob, your encampments, O Israel, like palm groves that stretch afar, like gardens beside a river, like aloes that the Lord has planted, like cedar trees beside the waters. Waters shall flow from his buckets, and his seed shall be in many waters. And then look at this shift here. We're talking about the people of God and how their encampment is beautiful, like the Garden of Eden, because God is with them. And then look at how the focus shifts here in the second part of verse 7. His king shall be higher than Agai, and his kingdom shall be exalted. So we're seeing again. Many, and who is the one who's exalted? Their king. It is their exalted king. And look what it says about the king. God brings him out of Egypt and is for him like the horns of the wild ox. The king is coming out of Egypt because he's redoing what Israel has gone through. And the difference is he's going to be faithful. He's going to do it perfectly. He's going to fill up the righteousness that they are lacking, that they might be justified in him. He shall eat up the nations, his adversaries. He shall break their bones in pieces and pierce them through with his arrows. He crouched. He lay down like a lion. And like a lioness, who will rouse him up? That should sound to us like Genesis 49. That king from Judah who's going to be a lion of a king, this is him. And what does it say at the end of verse 9? Blessed are those who bless you and cursed are those who curse you. That is, that is the promise given to Abraham. This is the true seed of Abraham. It is their king. And so, well, let's go back on over to Deuteronomy 6. When we're coming into Deuteronomy 6, everything we just looked at is before this. God's standard is perfect love for him, perfect all-encompassing love for him. And yet God knows this people is not sufficient for this command. And God is going to send a king who will not only fulfill that righteousness, he will enable his people to follow in that righteousness. And the way that Deuteronomy structured, I think, is, is lending itself toward that. The center of the book, Deuteronomy 17 and 18, is telling us about a king who's going to come who will devote himself to God's word. A prophet like Moses in Deuteronomy 18, who is going to teach God's people the word. And a new Moses, because he's going to provide a greater redemption than what they experienced out of Egypt. So what we're seeing is that Israel has failed. They have failed to be a faithful son to God. They have failed to be a, a, 
a faithful kingdom of priests. They have failed to be a faithful image of God's glory. And yet their king is going to be the very son of God, God the Son incarnate. He is going to be the perfect prophet, priest, and king. He is the express image of God. And he will step into their place as the true Israel who brings salvation to God's people. This is essential to understand as the backdrop to what we're looking at in Deuteronomy 6. And I'm going to try to argue from the text itself that a Christ-centered reading of Deuteronomy 6 is not just good, it is essential. So let's start in, in verse 4, and we'll, we'll proceed through the entirety of the passage. I'm going to go pretty quick through um, these first verses that we've already been through before. So verse 4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Israel is to worship no one besides Yahweh. Yahweh alone, no other God. Their pantheon is a pantheon of one. We saw in Mark 12, it confirms this interpretation, that this is instructing Israel on how to obey the first command from, from chapter 5. You shall have no other gods before me. They are to worship only Yahweh. There are false gods, but those false gods are created and they are demonic. They are not the uncreated God. They are not divine. Only God is divine. Yahweh is God alone. And Yahweh is God alone from everlasting to everlasting. Verse 5, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. That word for heart, they are to love the Lord your God with all your heart. The Hebrew word for heart is a little different than how we would think of heart. Um, when we think of you know the Disney follow your heart sort of thing, that's just your feelings and impulses. But um, later on in Deuteronomy, we're going to see they have not been given a heart to understand. There's understanding and thought that goes into one's heart. So our, our intellect, our mind, our feelings, all of these things are part of the Hebrew understanding of the, the word for heart here. Their entire will and being is supposed to be given to loving God. It is what should consume their, their thoughts and passions. You see this in Luke 10. There's that word for mind that's added into to this first command that's restated there. It is to convey this, this aspect. We're to be thinking about how glorious God is and thinking how we can love the Lord our God. That is part of using our heart to love God. What starts here very internally pours out into our entire soul, our, our entire life or person. We're to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, our entirety of our life. We are to use our very might, our resources, our muchness. We are to exert ourselves in every area of life in loving the Lord our God. They are to love the Lord their God with all they are, with all they have, from their innermost to their outermost. And what we are seeing here, and what is essential for us to keep in mind, is that there is much that can be done that seems good. And yet, if we think we are doing good, and yet holding back parts for ourselves and not giving ourselves fully to loving God, that's treason. We, we are tempted to think, why well, it's just a, it's a little bit for me. No. God has given us all that we are. All that we are must be rendered unto him in love and worship. And anything short of that is treason. It is sin. Obviously, this standard is 
as I've said, not going to be met by any of us in and of ourselves. We need help. And it's interesting, the, the idea here of loving the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might, the only person in the Old Testament that I found in my research that this is said of um, is going to be Josiah, not mine. Um, and I think that gives us the hint. It is the king who's going to do this. The king is going to do this, and the king is going to enable God's people to do this. Verse 6 says, And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. So what we're seeing here is, is kind of a process. They are to, verse 4, hear the words of the Lord, and then those words are to enter through their ears into their hearts to take up residence. This is God showing us how to be fathers and parents here. We are to teach the words to our children that the words will go into their ears. And yet, this idea of, of hearing God is not just listening to the words and then having it go right out the other ear. It needs to go in the ear and down into the heart. And yet the only one who's able to make that connection is God himself. It is only a work of the Spirit. We're going to have that theme of needing God to change hearts come up again and again in Deuteronomy. And so this this passage itself is, I think, anticipating that need as well. Verse 7, You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. We talked about how that command there, you shall teach them diligently to your children. That, that command means literally to repeat and that command is in the masculine singular. Certainly this applies for mothers, but the, the person who needs to take up this command as the leader is dad, every single dad. If dad loves the Lord his God, then he will teach his children to do the same. He will repeat the words of God that his children might know that they are to love the Lord their God by obeying all that he has commanded them. And the dynamic here is that they would that, that the father would show his children how to do this in all places and in all times. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. This requires us, requires us carefully prioritizing time with our family and then utilizing carefully that time with our family. And we talked about the reason. The reason why this is such an important task. And it's because these little image bearers of ours are not ultimately our image bearers. They are God's image bearers. We talked about this in Sunday school. Those, those image bearers were created by God. The Lord is the one who opens the womb. They, they are from God. They are also made for God. They are, they are made for God's glory. We, I mentioned this last week as well. Our children are not made to help us look good. Our children are made for us to help them look like God. They are God's image bearers, not ours. And we must take our stewardship and care of them seriously. And yet it is only by God that this task can be accomplished. 
Because every father who is seeking to image God the Father to his children, because that's what we're ultimately supposed to do. To, to, to train our little image bearers to image God, it means that we are showing them God the Father's desire for his children. So we are only imaging God the Father, and yet we don't do that perfectly as fathers, do we? It is only by God that this can be accomplished. I think we see a, a rather clear parallel to this um, in how we understand missions work. Um, in 1 Corinthians 3, Paul says, So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. Just as the children that we have were ultimately made by God, so too the new birth that we hope for our children can only happen by God's work. And yet look at what Paul says here. He says, He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. Even with God's sovereignty in the backdrop, he is reminding us that we are to diligently take up that labor at the same time. Why? Because it is God who is at work in us in this task. It is not our strength and sufficiency that will save our children. It is God's strength. It is God's sufficiency. It is his faithfulness. I do believe we should expect children raised in Christian homes to be saved. The expectation does not rest on us. It rests on God. And so we ask God to give us grace. We ask God to give us help. Um, it's perfectly consistent with Christian fatherhood and Christian parenting, as we discussed earlier, to have, have family devotions and start family devotions by praying that God would save my children. Because only God can. When I'm teaching my little ones to pray, because they love to pray before meals, sometimes that's me having them pray. God save me and save my brothers. It That's the only solution. Daddy's not strong enough for this task. We, we all have to be on our knees before God, asking him to help us and to provide that new growth in our children that they might be saved. I do think we have to tread carefully with how we handle parenting um, because I think we've too often in American evangelicalism assumed that our parenting being better than our neighbors means our parenting must be good. And yet the standard for parenting is God's word. It is not comparative to our neighbor. Nor is, is the standard of family discipleship to be pursuing whatever we want and then sprinkling Jesus on top of it. We must prioritize our lives in this way that we've talked about. Seeking as much time with our families as we can. Certainly we have to work. We have to provide for our families. And yet we have to prioritize um, how much work we do, how much money we want to make, what we are content with, so that we can do the more important task of teaching our children to love the Lord our God. This is a hard task. To love the Lord your God is, is a such a high standard, and now you're to teach your children to do the same. <laughs> what, has, what is already hard becomes harder. We need God's grace for this task. And, and as, especially for fathers, as, as imperfect representations of God the Father, we, are, we, are, we should know that the question of repentance in the home is not an if question. 
It's not if we're going to have to repent. It is when we have to repent, are we going to? It is not a question of if. It is when we have to repent, will we? Will we go to God and ask him to forgive us? Will we submit ourselves to God's standard for what it means to lead our families? And then will we have the humility to go and ask our children and our wives to forgive us when we have strayed? Whether that's in a small moment or that's been a large pattern. And what we will find is that when we go to God and we confess and repent, God will forgive us. He is faithful and just to do so. And God's gracious, sovereign hand is strong enough to even restore that which has been harmed or might be lacking in our families. There's been obvious times, you know, I've, I've had to ask um, my sons to forgive me. There's obvious times where I have to <laughs> tell my sons they need to repent as well. Um, one of my little or two, uh, you know, I'll, I'll instruct him when he sinned and then I'll have him apologize and I'll forgive him and I'll hug him and kiss him. And I'll, I just like, I do this little pat, I guess, over and over again, like this little, I love you. I forgive you, Pat. And there's been times where I've had to ask that same little one to forgive me sometimes. And you know what he does? He starts patting me on the back. And, and what I've realized is he's learning how to repent and forgive based off of what I'm doing. And it's, I'm not trying to say it's perfect, but they're paying attention. They're paying attention. And from a very young age, they are paying attention. And we need to set an example of, of repentance as husbands and then when they, so that when we have those instances where we have to confront our wife, we have to confront our children and show them an area of sin, they know that what daddy aims at is restoration, forgiveness, unity, love as a family. Because we do have to confront those under our care when they are in sin. So we need to show that example of what it means to repent, what it means to be restored. That is part of imperfect fatherhood is imaging repentance because we are not God the Father. And so we will need to show how to repent. And I think right in line with that thought, our sons, because this, this passage, this is directed in the masculine towards masculine children. I think you should translate that word children as sons. Certainly it applies to daughters, but I think the focus is on sons. Our sons are not the point of the passage either. Just as we are imaging God the Father, our sons are ultimately imaging who? God the Son. And that helps us. It helps us to know that our little image bearers are not the ultimate image bearer, and we should have an understanding of their need for help. We are there to show our, our sons and our children that when they fail, when they sin, their salvation and restoration and forgiveness be found in Christ. This helps us to see our children as a delight, as a gift from God, and to be patient with them, and to avoid the vicarious idolatry of seeking to live through our children with an impossible standard that's based on materialism. Our children are there to look like God, and we are there to serve under God's power in that direction. It is not about our convenience. It is not about us looking good.
And I think one of the things that I, I didn't touch on last week that probably bears touching on now um, is the difficulty of understanding God as Father when what we have in such an intimate space in our lives is imperfect fatherhood. It makes it harder for us to understand the, the perfection of God's fatherhood. And I mean that if you've had a good father, that good father's still imperfect. But there's so many people in our, in our culture, in our day and age, that, that have bad fathers or no fathers. And that has a profound impact. How can we help ourselves as we deal with those things? How can we help others as they're wrestling with these things? And I, th- I think you know, it can seem like there's this insurmountable hill or mountain that's in front of us of how do we reckon with this fatherhood and understand God? And, and the solution is to look higher and understand this, that if, if our, our father was completely absent, God's fatherhood is there to perfectly fill up that which was lacking so that there's nothing left um, for us to want that we would have the fullness of fatherhood in God. God can take, even if we've had a bad father, he can take that which might be twisting our image of God, our our understanding of God, our understanding of God's fatherhood. God can take that which is twisted and make it straight. God is strong enough to do that. And then even if you are blessed with an ideal father, even then, the point is still to see God as the fuller and greater Father that you truly need. In every aspect of what we're dealing with with our fathers, we have to understand that God is the all-sufficient one we're supposed to be seeing through all of that. And we can rejoice knowing that God is using even the difficulties in that pursuit to help us know and appreciate Him more. Because an, even, even a good father who's imperfect isn't going to be sufficient for us to be fulfilled. So that only leaves us with one father we can come to and be fulfilled with. And that goes all the way down to if father's not in the home at all. God is here for us. He is not just a good father. He is the good father. And in all of these situations, he is beckoning us to rejoice in knowing him and to find fullness of blessing. Verse 8, I talked about going from hard to harder. I'm going to come back and exposit this passage and show you how Christ is the fulfillment of it, but it's going to have to get harder before we get there. Verse 8, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. So, this, this verse is talking about binding the words as a sign on your hand and letting them be as frontless between your eyes. And in Second Temple Judaism, this was taken very literally. They would make these little, little boxes and tie a leather strap around the box and then put a little bit of scripture, oftentimes Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9, in that little box and then literally put it on their wrist by their hand and put it on their foreheads. They were taking this very seriously. Um, and very literally. Now, I'm going to try to explain. I, I think this is actually meant to be understood in a symbolic way. So I'm going to give a, some reasons for, for that interpretation. One of them being that um, the word for sign that we have here 
it was used back in chapter 4, and it's going to be used again in chapter 6 to talk about how God, through his mighty hand, has done great signs in redeeming his people out of Egypt. So signs done by the hand are a demonstration of God's glory, an imaging of God's glory. And I think therein lies the point. Our hands, our power, our work is to be devoted to imaging God. Just as we talked about from the Sabbath command, working is an imitation of God. Using your hands, doing your work, should be done in an imitation of God. I, I, I think this fits as well with what we were discussing from chapter 5 and what we're discussing here in chapter 6 as well. God's given them 10 words to show in greater detail how they are to image God's glory. And he's given them on their hands 10 fingers so that in with all their might, they might love the Lord their God perhaps. That's why we're designed this way. Um, and in addition to that, we've discussed with verse 7, they are to love the Lord their God when they sit in their house and when they walk by the way, everywhere they go. And we have 10 toes so that everywhere we go, we might remember to love the Lord our God in everything we do. That's one way you could interpret it. I, I wonder if that's the entire design here, to, to be a living reminder of how we are to love the Lord our God. This, and this seems to be consistent with this idea of um, using all of our might, using all of our might everywhere we go, like I was saying here um, in Deuteronomy 6. It seems to convey the point as well with the idea of teaching our children, our little image bearers, to be image bearers of God. We are to not just teach them words. We have to understand that so much of discipleship is not just taught, it is caught. It is through the observation of how we live our lives to glorify God that our children are going to notice. As I said, they are paying attention. They, and they're, they're paying attention not just to what, what we do. Even from a young age, children are able to discern what we value, which is a terrifying thought. They know what we, we get excited about. They know what we're really pursuing. It says, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You see that word for eyes used in the Hebrew and in Scripture to, to talk about what you think is worthwhile. The fruit in the garden was pleasing to Eve's eyes. And Jesus instructs us that our, our eyes are the lamp of the body. And what we set that lamp on will either fill us with light or fill us with darkness. So we should set our eyes on the heavenly riches of knowing God. That we might be full of the light of God's glory. A glory that is far greater than earthly riches, which will not last that will be destroyed. And so I think the imagery here is showing us that our love for God is supposed to characterize everything about us. This is supposed to be the most obvious thing about who we are. Here's your personality test. What personality are you? You're the sort of personality that should love the Lord your God with all that you are. This seems to fit as well with the idea of imaging. We, we saw that God is telling them to Follow his commands so that his glory is known to the nations in chapter 4. In chapter 5, we've talked about how they are to bear his name and not in a way that is vain. They are to be good image bearers in covenant with God. And now he's been reiterating these points, I think, here in chapter 6, which seems to be God showing us how to be a good father. You have to repeat the lesson, 
repeat it more than once, repeat it in different ways. I think that's exactly what God's doing here. If you want help being a father, look to God. He's showing us how to do it. I think as well, you see different statements in Proverbs that are similar to what's being said here about binding and wearing. And yet I think Proverbs is obviously trying to get at the heart of how we live, not just the externals of how we live. We see, a, we see this dynamic in 1 Samuel 15. It says, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. God is not concerned with just externals. You can wear a really good Jesus-like bracelet and headband and yet go off and sin. God is not concerned with our externals and our jewelry. He is not concerned with phylacteries, which is what they would call these things. He is concerned with us loving him and imaging him in all that we are. And I think we see that in Christ is the fulfillment of this, because we don't see anywhere, to my knowledge, of Christ ever wearing a phylactery, wearing a, one of these wristbands or headbands. We don't see that. What we do see with him is that he is the image of the invisible God, perfectly showing the glory of God to all those around him. And so he is the fulfillment of this. We mentioned Revelation 7 this morning in Sunday school, and, and I, I was arguing that I think what we see in Revelation 7 is a perfect restored Israel, which is in and of itself the church, this multitude um, from every tribe and people and nation language. And, and what we see there is that what characterizes those people is that they are sealed by God. What marks them is their love for God and their abstention from idolatry, that they worship only the Lord their God. And I think we see modern examples of this very thing. I don't. I, some of y'all, wow, I'm getting a gauge on how old I am. Back in the day, we used to have these things called WWJD bracelets. And I remember being a youngster and thinking how cool it was because I would see athletes wearing them, all kinds of people wearing these. And it can make you feel like, wow, we're really going somewhere good spiritually in our country. How's it been going since then? We had externals, and we were talking about this yesterday. There's other things like that that have happened, other external things. It's not been enough. We are not a repentant nation by and large. No, what we need is not externals. We need to set our eyes on the glory of God. And as we set our eyes on the glory of God, by God's grace, he will make us like him. And as God makes us like him, that will be what is on display to our children and as I mentioned from chapter 4, what will be on display to the nations, to those around us who are lost as well? Verse 9 says, You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. So we've been seeing, uh, verse 8 seems to be a restatement of the idea of loving the Lord your God with all that you are. Um, from verses 4 and 5, verse 9 seems to be a restatement of what we talked about from verse 7. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. It seems like this is reemphasizing the point that you are to love God every place that you go. So this idea of loving the Lord our God is everything we are from our innermost to our outermost, in every time, in every place. And this verse, verse 9, seems to be restating the point here for us. So whether we're doing family devotions around the table in our house, or we're going out into the gates of the public square, we read about that from Proverbs 31, the gates um, being reflective of like the, this, the 
main city area, wherever we are, whether in private or in public, everything we, everything we do must be done for the express purpose of loving the Lord our God. Everywhere. And we read from Genesis 22, the same word for gates that we see here. This love for God is going to overcome even the gates of God's enemies. The nations are going to know the glory of God, and the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord's glory as the waters cover the seas. We're seeing these things restated to give us hope, to know that someone's going to do this. If we consider the, the demands, I mean, if we just think about the demands that are here, here's the, here's the standard. Here's the standard we've just seen in Deuteronomy 6. We are to love the Lord our God alone. Now, you might be thinking, I have no idols built in my house, so I must be good on that portion of this. And I think the whole rest of it is actually to explain what that looks like. So let's, let's before we give ourselves an A+, let's continue to consider. Loving the Lord our God alone means loving him with all that we are and in all of our efforts. It's not going as well now, is it? We're to love the Lord our God with all that we are and all of our efforts in every place that we go and at all times. We are to love the Lord, we are, love the Lord our God by teaching our children to do the same. We are to love the Lord our God in such a way that it is the most obvious thing about us. I don't want my report card right now. I don't think any of us wants our report card at this point. We all stumble in various ways. We have a propensity to take that which is created that which is created and to elevate it above the creator who is sufficient for these things. And yet I, I think actually verse 8 gives us a couple of, 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 of hints as well. Verse 8, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. I was trying to look through, and, and it's interesting, that word for bind and that word for hand, the only other place I could see those two words together is in Genesis 38. Judah um, has had these twins, and the first one that comes out, on his hand they bind a scarlet cord. Now, you see as well in Joshua 2 that that scarlet word, and that binding word are used to talk about how Rahab ties this scarlet to her window. She binds it on her window. Why? So that as Israel passes over, she and her family might be spared. And where do we see these concepts of firstborn from Genesis 38 and Passover from Joshua 2 come together? Exodus 12. How are the people of God spared from God passing over in Egypt? By the blood of the Lamb by their Passover lamb. So if I can take some of these abstract thoughts and boil, and boil it down, here's a few points that we're seeing just from the reuse of these important words. God's people need to be redeemed. God knows it. He's going to use this word for signs to talk about redemption coming up here, and he already has. God knows that we need bloodshed to cover our sins. And God knows we need a king who can stand in as the firstborn and bring us redemption, whereas Adam has brought us failure. God knows we need all these things. We've seen, we've seen this with what happened at Sinai. We discussed this earlier in Deuteronomy. At Sinai, the people are making a covenant with God and immediately break that covenant. 
immediately. They have not even left the mountain. And they've already broken the covenant. We know that when Israel goes into the land, it will not be long before they, they fail. And so this is, when we're putting together the story of the Bible, something that we need to keep in mind that's really important is the covenant with David. The covenant with David is, is a situation where David is, is seeking to build a house for God, a temple for God. And yet God says, I'm going to build your house. And yet God is making a pun. He's saying that the house that he's going to build for David is to give him a son, a son who will be to God a son. And what that means is Israel was called in Exodus 4 to come out of Egypt as God's son, and yet they failed to be a faithful son. So what the covenant with David is showing us is that the king who's coming from David is going to be the true son that Israel couldn't be. He is going to be the true Israel. He's going to represent them in righteousness. And so let's go over really quick here to Proverbs chapter 6. And keep in mind what we've just read here in Deuteronomy chapter 6. And, and just to, to remind us before we start reading, the book of Proverbs is not just pithy little say, sayings that um, help us live life better. Proverbs has context, and the context is the Davidic son being instructed by his father. And the, the content of the instruction, I think, is going to become clear for us as we look at this section from Proverbs chapter 6. So what I want you to do, I'm going to read some verses. I want you to think of what passage in the Old Testament this, this passage sounds like. So Proverbs 6, verse 20. My son, keep your father's commandment and forsake not your mother's teaching. Bind them on your heart always. Tie them around your neck. When you walk, they will lead you. When you lie down, they will watch over you. And when you awake, they will talk with you. For the commandment is a lamp, and the teaching is a light, and the reproofs of discipline are the way of life, to preserve you from the evil woman, from the smooth tongue of the adulteress. What passage does that sound like? It's Deuteronomy 6, isn't it? There's all kinds of things from Deuteronomy 6 restated here. And this is why this is really important. It's showing us that the one who's going to come into Deuteronomy 6 and actually love God this way is the son of David. It's their king. The one who's been foreshadowed up until this point, the one who's coming to fulfill all righteousness at the proper time after God gives them this command here in Deuteronomy 6. And, and I think this is made obvious as we consider further the context of Proverbs. That true son of David is God the son. So who's his true father that's that's given him instruction that he's following. It's God the Father. Did you see that in, in John 14? Christ the Son has come to do what his Father has commanded him. And so when we see Christ, we are seeing the very Father because he is following him, doing the works that the Father has given him to do. So if we can, I want to go back over to Deuteronomy 6. And if, if we presume that I'm correct about about what I'm saying about Deuteronomy 6, being focused on the Son of David, being focused ultimately on Christ, how do we understand Christ is fulfilling Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9? And this is, this, is, this is the most important part of this sermon. This is it. So if it's true that this is about Christ, how has Christ fulfilled this? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, 
the Lord is one. Christ is tempted in the wilderness to come underneath Satan, just as Adam was, to forsake God and to come underneath Satan. Jesus does not. He is only doing the will of his Father, even in the garden, not as I will, but as you will. He is worshiping only the Lord his God. Verse 5, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Christ came incarnate, fully human, and gave everything in devotion to loving the Lord his God, from his innermost to his outermost, all the way to the cross. Verse 6, and these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. Christ came and indeed hid these words in his heart that he might not sin against the Father. And even coming as a baby grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man so that we might ultimately have these commands written on our hearts. We'll talk about that more here as we go. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down and when you rise. I talked last week, that word for sitting, that's the same word for how God in 2 Samuel 7 is going to dwell in the temple. He's going to dwell in the house of God with his people. And Christ has come and dwelt among us, his body being the better temple. And he, like we saw in John 14, becoming the very way that we might come to the Father. And that way led him to the cross. That is the extent of his love for the Father. That is the extent of his obedience. Obedience to even die on the cross, to lie down in the grave in death, only to rise in victory through his resurrection, such that we are now made children of God. We are adopted through this true son. And we are made disciples of his by the Spirit through the church. And we are in that way being built into the house of God, into the temple of God. We are the way through our Savior who is the way. And we know that even if we lie down in death, we will rise. And we will be with God forever in a new creation. Verse 8. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. Christ has accomplished this new exodus. He has done greater signs through his life and death and resurrection. Because his hands were bound, they were pierced. And from his body came scarlet that covers us from all our sins to accomplish this greater exodus. He is indeed the king, the firstborn, truly from Judah, the seed of the woman, the seed of Abraham, who is our Passover lamb, because his eyes were fixed on the glory of God and the joy set before him. He has gone to the cross and in that work has sealed us with the Spirit so that we are being remade into the image of God. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. We are the house of God, and on us, on our very hearts, Christ has written these commands. He has given us new hearts. He has given us the power to obey these commands through the Spirit who is in us. And our proclamation of this gospel will be successful. What I quoted from him back in 2 is going to happen. All peoples will know the glory of God through Christ's church and what he is doing 
in his people, and the gates of hell will not succeed against it. We need to love God for so many reasons, but certainly one of them is because of how he has loved us. As oftentimes in Scripture you see God's love is declared rather plainly, and fittingly so. God has loved us in significant and tremendous ways. Oftentimes when you look at the love that people are supposed to have back to God, very rarely is it a stated love. You don't see a lot of, I love you, God, in the Bible. What you see a lot of is imperative. Love the Lord your God. Like we saw in John 14, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And it's obvious why. God has loved us in such a great way and with such great faithfulness. We will never attain. We need God to help us to love him in that way. John 15 is going to go on to talk about how there is no greater love than that one will lay down their, their life for their friends. And that in First John, that we love God because he first loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So when we look at the dynamic of loving God by keeping his commandments, of living in a sacrificial Romans 12 sort of way ourselves, it really is only our reasonable worship to love God in this way. We owe all that we are to God, and twice over, if you'll consider this with me, and I'm pulling from Revelation 4 and 5 with this, we owe all that we are to God twice over as Christians. One, because we exist. He made us. And then two, if you're a Christian, he made you again through Christ. So when we look at the the call to love the Lord our God, we owe him everything times two. It is only our reasonable worship to love the Lord our God. And we know that God, like I mentioned earlier, is not just a good father. He is the good father. And that as we obey his commands, as we love him by obeying his commands, they are not just not a burden. They are certainly not a burden. They are the good life. They are the way to blessing. So when we pray, we don't just tell God that we love him. We need to ask God to help us love him, that we might grow in godliness and in loving him faithfully. He is worthy of our love. He is worthy of our praise. And he gives the very power by which we might love him. And we can praise him and thank him for it because of what Christ has done.